When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going, but there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S dot com. Betches Media presents... He's in the building! Afternoon Tea with host Sammy Sage. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. Presented by the Betches Sub Podcast. Better hope there's a lot of girls listening to this with the volume turned down. Your weekly dose of political therapy. Cardi... That's what I've been doing my whole life. And now, with this week's guest... Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Your host, Sammy Sage. Welcome to today's episode of Afternoon Tea, your companion to the morning announcements and weekly political therapy session brought to you by The Betches Sup. Today's guest is Maya Wiley, who is currently running for mayor of New York City. Up until now, she's had an illustrious career as a lawyer, professor, civil rights activist, and MSNBC legal analyst. Maya is here to share with us the pillars of her campaign, her plans for restoring NYC post-pandemic, and how her policies will help the most vulnerable individuals and communities in the city. We also talk about ranked choice voting, which will be used in the NYC mayoral election this year, and which she has been advocating for as a pro-democracy measure. With that, let's get the tea from Maya. Thank you so much for joining us, Maya. I am so thrilled to be talking to you. I see you on my on my TV on MSNBC all the time, and now you are here on Zoom with me. Uh, it's so great to be with you, Sammy. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Of course. So first of all, congrats on your bid for New York City mayor. We have a lot of New Yorkers who listen to this podcast, and I'm sure are really invested in the mayoral race. So just to start, what... What inspired you to run right now at this particular time? So much of it was the crisis the country was in that the city was in, right? I mean, four years of that monster we call Donald Trump, uh, and I will call him a monster publicly as well as privately, uh, but that literally created crises. Uh, We were already a city, though, that also faced so many challenges. I mean, we were far too unaffordable. You know, my own daughter, who's 17 now, very creative kid, uh, even before COVID struck, trying to figure out how she could afford to stay in the city she loves as an art kid, right? As someone who was considering how she could work in the arts. That's not a conversation we should have to have. There should be no question that in a city as fabulous as New York, that our, uh, that our own children who are growing up here may not be able to stay here. And we know that that has been become far too great a reality. So that was starting to call me in because it was also so important that we had leadership that was not just standing up to Washington, but recognizing how to be more effective as a city at solving our problems, at solving our divisions. You know, we had anti-Semitism was on the rise in New York City, thanks to Trumpism. 
Islamophobia, anti-black violence, anti-LGBTQ violence. I mean, these were divisions that we shouldn't see in our city, uh, but the city had to be effective at it, effective at protecting immigrants. Um, those are all things that I have done for 30 years as a racial justice advocate, as a civil rights lawyer, and I've done it in senior leadership positions in city government. And it was just time to have a very different kind of leadership in the city that actually knows how to make change happen in ways that New Yorkers will feel in their daily lives. You know, it's it's so I definitely want to get into some of your background working in civil rights activism. But um, I also want to give you enough of a chance to kind of talk about, you know, what your platform and your priorities would be for the city. So what would you say if you had to like list one through three, like what would your top three priorities be for New York City once you're elected? Yeah, well, first and foremost, besides getting elected, but that we're working on, but we have to recover from COVID, right? And we have to recognize we have to recover, but it's how, because we have to become a more affordable city. We have to be a city where people are safe, safe from crime, but also safe from police violence. And we have to recognize that our kids have lost a year, a year and are traumatized. And we have to focus on investing in our classrooms so our kids are coming back as well. And those are three big priorities that ensure that we're both, you know, frankly, right-sizing the police department, focusing our precious dollars on things like mental health services, making sure that those folks who are homeless are actually getting into homes and getting into homes with the kind of mental health supports they need to stay in them. Because a big part of the public safety challenge we're facing right now in the face of COVID and in the face of a national government not helping us with homelessness is using our resources wisely so that we're putting people directly in homes with support services that will also make us safer because that's a lot of a lot of what's making us insecure right now in terms of public safety. So you were just alluding to how we had we had lost a year and we really I mean as someone who's lived in the city for for years it's really and I'm from the tri-state area it's really devastating to see like all the closed shops and you know the restaurants that you know you thought would always be there and just all the reasons that people came to the city for culture and and museums and art what do you sort of make of this whole like trope that New York City is dead how do you plan to kind of restore it to its former glory yeah. Look, anyone who says New York City is dead has not spent enough time in a lot of our neighborhoods in New York City. Because as we know, for those of us, you know, in neighborhoods where we watched our restaurants spill out onto the streets and they became the places where we could meet with one another. And they were vibrant. There were lots of people. We were traumatized. We were stressed. I don't mean there weren't serious problems, but it showed how much life there was. And the other thing we saw, certainly I was doing it. And a lot of my neighbors, my neighbors and I organized a volunteer network because I am a lawyer. I am someone who has worked on small businesses and economic development, both outside of government with my law degree and as an advocate, but also inside city government on women minority-owned business enterprises. I was able to get New York City spend from $500 million up to $1.6 billion on our businesses in one year in city government. So I know how it's done. But I also knew in COVID, so many of our community businesses would not get that help. 
right? Because it's so much of it is about making government smarter about how it supports small businesses. So we organized, you know, a neighborhood network of people who had know-how and we did trainings and we tried to reach our small business owners so that we could tell them how to access the federal dollars that were being made available for our small businesses. You know, that's the kind of thing New Yorkers were doing. And, And we got a lot of things we have to fix about these programs. I know firsthand what the problems are and how to fix them. But the thing is, it showed us what we do as New Yorkers. You know, we have had crisis after crisis. We had the financial crisis of the 1970s. You know, we had 9-11. We had the great, you know, recession of 2008. We had Hurricane Sandy. We come back because when it gets tough, New Yorkers get tougher and New Yorkers come together. It's one of the things I love about the city. The question is, are we going to have a government that actually works differently and partners with people. And that's what I've done outside of government and within government. And that's what we need to both not just show that we're not dead because we're not, but also show how we're coming back and convince other folks to see what we see, show them what we see and get and get this economy back on track so people can pay their rent, so people can get jobs, so that we have the quality of life of streets with no trash and with people who are no longer homeless uh, and scary, frankly, because we're giving them the supports they need. And we have the resources, even in a crisis. We just have to use our dollars more smartly and wisely. You're really making my New York pride kind of swell. And I'm thinking back to the early days of the pandemic when everyone would kind of clap out their windows. And it is true. New York is so resilient. Something you alluded to earlier was your daughter wanting to work in the arts, but worrying that she wouldn't be able to afford living in in New York City. Something that, you know, a trend that has been pretty obvious to me during the pandemic is just a lot of people leaving to go places that are, you know, they could get a bigger apartment for the same amount of money or less. They, you know, and then you have sort of, you know, the whole business vibe of people wanting to go to Florida or Texas where there's lower taxes. How do you actually make the city more affordable without raising taxes and, you know, having that reaction where people? do you want to leave or some of the highest, the most fruitful tax base wants to leave? Well, let's, let's start by one set of conversations. I've been, ha- I've been talking to everybody because I believe that we have to talk to each other and we have to talk across race and across class and across all the things that traditionally are divisions that we have to erase as divisions. But one of the things I hear from people who are wealthy all the time and that we should recognize in New York is We have growth sectors of our economy. Even during COVID, we added jobs in the tech sector, added jobs during COVID. People moved into New York City for those jobs. It was a little cheaper. So it was well, it was a little cheaper, uh, but there were jobs. And this is the thing. I got a plan called New Deal New York where we are going to create 100,000 new jobs, new jobs. And we're going to focus them also on projects. It's $10 billion of spending our resources to build things that solve problems we need to solve. It's our capital construction budget. Economists will tell you, we know this from the Great Depression to the Great Recession. This is how we stimulate the economy. But the thing is, it's usually left out certain communities, meaning communities of color in particular, which is a big chunk of our city. 
And so, and also hard hit by COVID. So one of the things we have to do is spend $10 billion on building things. That includes affordable housing. Part of our capital construction budget is affordable housing. So we're not just creating 100,000 new jobs when we do that. We're also solving another problem. So we're putting money in people's pockets that help them pay the rent as we're bringing the rents down. And that is smart government. But I will say this, and this is my point about people who are wealthy. A lot of them, and the research bears this out. I can get wonky on you. I won't right now. You can. Feel free. I can, well, yeah. look, it, look, well, let me tell you about the conversations first, right? A lot of wealthy people say to me, not all, I don't want to pretend like it's all wealthy people, but a lot of them say, look, Maya, I love this city. I was paying more to live in the city before COVID because it was already an expensive city. It was already cheaper in Florida before COVID struck. I'm all in if I know that the money is going to be spent to save our subways. If I know that the money is going to be sent to make our schools better, that's what I want to see. So if you give me a plan, I'll agree to pay more money. That's a, we have to recognize that there is a conversation to be had in the city that brings us together and gets us all putting on the table what we have to bring to bring our city back and a lot of will to do it. And the research bears this out because there's, there's research that shows wealthy people have a lot of money. So guess what? They move around a lot, but they don't change their home address. So really what we're hearing and seeing is folks with resources going to the second home or third home to weather their way through COVID. I understand that. I think any of us who had the option to do that would, right? The issue is, but does that mean they're leaving permanently? They don't know. They haven't decided. And it isn't just all about taxes. It really is about restoring the confidence that it's going to be safe because we're going to take care of street homelessness, that we're going to invest in critical, what I call social infrastructure, like schools, like education, that it's going to be a quality place to live, that we're not going to cut the, tra the trash budget because the trash has to be picked up. That was a mistake the de Blasio administration made. I have no idea how they made that mistake. $100 million in a $90 billion budget. That is not money you have to cut. And it's certainly not money that helps instill the confidence we need to instill. I will be the mayor that makes sure those services don't get cut because I know where to cut the fat. I know where the fat is in government. It does exist. And that's the other thing I've said to people, we'll cut fat, but we can't cut into bone. And that is what is going to help us both hold on to our people, bring new people in, which, as I said, we've already started to do, but do it in a way that also invests in our people being able to stay here, to be able to afford to stay here, because that was a mounting crisis that we had before COVID struck and that we have to acknowledge as we see 400 thousand more New Yorkers facing eviction. And that's on top of the 200,000 who were facing eviction before COVID. So that requires us to be willing to put resources on the table because that's about rent subsidies. That's about recognizing this isn't anybody's fault. And that is about working with multiple levels of government to say, we do need to put more dollars on the table to, in order to bring back all our cities. And that includes New York, which is 8% of the nation's gross domestic product, 8%. When you're that big, you do, you're worthy of investment because you're helping the nation recover as well as the city. Totally. I mean, New York is, there's a reason people 
people want to live there and will pay more to live there. We all know your hair and skin can sway your mood and impact your day in ways you can't underestimate. Sometimes what starts as a bad hair day quickly turns into a bad everything else day. I'd never found beauty products that really understood my needs, but ever since I switched to custom hair and skin routine with pros, I've noticed so many benefits. Healthier hair and skin, yes, but beyond that too. Since I started using pros, I've noticed consistently healthy hair. Even with all I put it through with the heat tools and the hairsprays to get this pompadour sky high, it smells great, it looks fancy on the shelf, and I like that it has my name right on it. This formula is made for V. Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. From millions of possible formulas, only one is uniquely yours or mine. And pros isn't just better for you. It's better for the planet. They're a certified beacon cruelty-free, and the first and only carbon-neutral custom beauty brand. They even have a review and refine tool, which learns from my feedback and adjusts my formula to keep up with the seasons and changes in my life. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription at pros.com slash feverdream. So get your free consultation, then 50% off at pros.com slash feverdream. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash feverdream. So just just out of curiosity, because I mean, just to help our audience understand like what goes into a city budget, you said that you know how to cut the fat. What would you say is considered fat in that context? Well, first of all, let me say two things, because they're really two things. One is cutting fat. The other is finding efficiency. Look, we have grown the police budget year in, year out, even though it is not responsive to crime. And I think this is the point. We must be safe. We must have low crime rates. They're still historically low, but people are understandably afraid. A big part of that is street homelessness, which we can solve if we use our money differently. So let's talk about efficiency, right? So police budgets, one, right? We can, we can actually stop paying police officers to be mental health professionals because that's not why they signed up for the job. And frankly, we need to make sure we're, we're investing in mental health. So that means right-sizing the police department, focusing it on what we need police to do, but not asking police and paying police to do what we don't need them to do. That's just smart government. We should do that in every agency, right? But the other is on the efficiency side. So take, take street homelessness. We spend $3 billion a year to put people in unsafe congregate shelters, $3 billion a year. If we increased rent subsidies by 500 million, we could put people directly in homes. We could put them in homes with support services because we already have a service budget for these supports. And we'd be spending less money than we're spending on congregate shelters. It's crazy. 3,000 a month on a congregate shelter. It doesn't make sense. And it's more effective, efficient, and costs less money to be more efficient that way. And it also solves the safety problem because the safety problem really is about the fact that the homeless who are mentally ill and need support services or who have drug addictions and need rehabilitation services aren't getting them in place in those shelters and the shelters are dangerous. So we're, we're actually creating more safety and humanity for them as we're creating more safety for folks just trying to walk down the street and go to work or, or ride the subway or, or, or sit outside and eat outside at a restaurant in their neighborhood. It's a win-win and it's more efficient. It's cheaper. 
You know what you're describing sounds so, it sounds like it makes so much sense. It's just like, why don't we do it already? But um, you would also, if, if you're elected, you'd also be New York City's first female mayor. And while we're sort of talking about, you know, underrepresented groups at a time when there are so many women being adversely affected by the pandemic, dropping out of the workforce, what policies do you think would be most effective at remedying that particular trend and getting women back into the workforce and just generally more support? Uh, Thank you for this question, because, of course, it's one I've experienced. I think it's one, you know, all women have experienced where either you're leaving the workforce because like we've seen in COVID where women have lost a decade, at least a decade of gains in terms of employment and fairness at work, right? And, and, and moving up the ladder and breaking through glass ceilings. But what has happened is, you know, our kids have been in crisis <laughs> and our kids have been home and women who can afford to have given up the paycheck in order to take care of their families including their kids, helping them be online, helping them figure out the trauma that they're experiencing, the loss that they've experienced in friendships and all of that, right? Or taking care of elderly parents or as I've had to do in my life and so many women have had, take care of both the elderly parent and the young kids and work. It's it's, it's devastating, right? We're, we're supposed to be super women and guess what? We're just human. And it's amazing how much we get done. So no surprise in COVID that we took a hard hit because of the level of trauma and catching it on all sides. But it's also women who are black, who are Latina, who are immigrant, who are in the caring economy. Because if you were a black woman immigrant, 62% unemployment rate is a result of COVID, 62%. So we also have to recognize where we've lost the jobs for people who are now facing eviction or in food pantry lines. So there are a couple of different approaches, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, one, we're going to create a grant program that puts $5,000 in the pockets of needy families, we can do 100,000 families off the bat with the amount of money we've been able to find in savings in the city budget that will help families care for themselves, right? Care for children. That's either because you're replacing wages that have been lost that you can care for your family or, or to help supplement the cost of paying for care because we know it is one of the top three costs. And average cost is like $23,000 in childcare a year. If you're a working class family, you can't even afford that. So it helps supplement that so you can pay for care. And that's whether it's a child, a family member with a disability or an elderly parent. So that's one step. And we think we can go up from there, but we're starting with where we can find the money and what we know we can pay for. But the second is community care centers. You know, we have to start thinking differently about what families need. So we're going to use our New Deal New York budget to help build the physical spaces, but they're going to be one-stop drop-off centers with quality care. That means we're creating jobs for so many of the people who've lost them in the care economy, who care for children, who care for the elderly. They're going to be union jobs. They're going to be good jobs. But we're also going to recognize that, the, you know, that is going to help families because when you have the emergency or when you have to work but have no one to care for your child or your elderly parent, there's a safe place you will be able to go in your neighborhood where, you, where they will get that care during the day uh, or evening when you need it. The other thing we'll do with that is we'll co-locate. We'll invite in the community-based organizations 
and city services that people need to be able to access because that's the other challenge, right? You can't have to take care of family, go to work, and then go to three or four different places to get some of the supports you need, like signing up for food stamps or you know, applying for housing or the other kinds of things you need to do. So our vision is that they also become one-stop shops. So you can get care and support, but you can also get access to services and programs. And that I think is going to be a game changer in so many communities where we really see women. I'll give you one real story, true story. A woman named Audia lives in Brooklyn. She travels four hours a day, two hours there, two hours back as a home health aide to take care of a client who's in a wheelchair. She stands in a food pantry line twice a week even though she's working 40 hours. How does she like physically have the time is what I, with a four hour commute. She gets up at 5 a.m. to travel two hours to get to work. And then she gets back late at night and she's got her own family to take care of. And the pay doesn't even ensure that she can buy food for her family and her husband works too. It's a two, it's a two income household. This is the point we have to start investing in our families and recognizing women's work. It's not just women, but let's face it, it's disproportionately women taking the hit, but it also helps men. Uh, it helps men who are, who are caretakers because we do have men who are caretakers. It's anyone who is doing that work who gets that help and support and the whole family benefits. We have to start thinking that way because it's also gonna help our city be more affordable for more of our people. Yeah, I mean, it's such a travesty and this was, this was even before COVID that people can work, you can have a double income family and it's just simply not enough. It's like, what what more is, is expected from people? Like, I don't understand how it's productive to have someone working full a full-time job and still not be able to pay for food. Like, what what is going on? It's just sort of, yeah. No, it's ridiculous. And let's say like the city government can do more to deal with the three highest costs of living in the city. So one is housing. So we can create more affordable housing. And as I said, we're going to invest in that. We already have a plan to invest in more affordability. The second is is childcare. So we've talked about that, creating childcare centers and also subsidies to help families make ends meet while they care for family. The third is healthcare. Healthcare. This city provides healthcare to 1.25 million New Yorkers because the government itself is the size of a city. But that gives us tremendous bargaining power to bring costs down, which will help every family, not just those in the New York City workforce. Everything from prescription drug costs to the costs of hospital care and seeing a doctor. So we can actually use our weight of city government to bargain for lower prices for city employees, work with universities and and unions to collaborate on doing just that, make pricing more transparent. And we can also, we're working on this right now, we have 600,000 New Yorkers that don't have health insurance. A lot of them are undocumented immigrants, but, but a lot of them are just in cash economy jobs and not getting benefits, falling through the cracks. That is a that healthcare is a human right, uh, and we can help close that gap as city government. But that's going to make the city a lot more affordable for all our residents. 
Yeah, I mean, it is, there's so many problems that all sort of intersect and kind of at the end, it all kind of comes down to money, which is what I'm, I'm noticing. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you need a Mother's Day gift for the quilter or a birthday present for the vintage hunter, there is something for everyone on Etsy. Some of the things I like to buy on Etsy have little dachshunds on them or are four dachshunds. Dottie's got a whole litany of new sweaters and harnesses and all kinds of fun stuff that we get lots of compliments on when we're out on walks. A gifting moment is always just around the corner, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you. Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. So I do want to go back to you spoke about your background in civil rights activism and your father is a civil rights activist. Would you be able to talk about sort of how that background impacted your career what and what you want to focus on. And then if you want to go more into sort of your vision for the police force, that would be great. Yeah. Look, well, I, te- you know, my, my, both my parents, my mother too, is really just as much of an activist as my father. So both my parents, but you know, they're really personal experiences I had number one, you know, because my father put black women in charge <laughs> of the organizing and of the organization that he ran the national welfare rights organization, because he believed that women who were on welfare, black women in particular were leaders and that we should see the folks who were impacted by the problems as folks who are also able to fight for the solutions. And so these women, women like Johnny Tillman, who just an incredible powerhouse, but is a woman on welfare. So part of it was their example of believing in people and believing in their expertise, no matter how much money they had or their education level, that understand wisdom comes from experience, experiences, life experiences, and that should be honored and, and that voice should be supported. But I also sought my own personal experience, right? Because my parents, I went, lived in a black neighborhood when I was young and my formative years going to the neighborhood, segregated, overcrowded, underfunded public school. And I was two years behind grade level in the second grade, despite being at the top of my class, despite having parents who read Bank Street books to me before I started kindergarten, despite having parents who had eight years of graduate education between them. I mean, my father was a black man who had a PhD in organic chemistry from Cornell University in 1957. I did not have an education background issue in my family, nor did I have parents who weren't doing all the things they were supposed to do. It was the school system that failed us. It was not us as students failing the school system. And so the, having the personal experience of failure to invest in kids was a personal experience of mine. And the resources that it took for my family to bring me back (laughs) 
to grade level, not because I couldn't do the work, but because the system was under-resourced. It just wasn't, the classrooms were overcrowded and the teachers were stressed out. Um, so I, all of that really shaped my experience and why I became a civil rights lawyer, why I fought on every issue from, you know, education funding to access to health care and fighting to keep maternal and child care beds in Harlem and fighting on digital divide. And when I was in city government, getting every single apartment in Queensbridge houses free broadband, showing the government how it could do things it has never done before. Because the reality is change making, right? And that government has to see itself as a change maker because the status quo doesn't work. But what we have to understand and what my parents kind of legacy, but also what they showed me by example, you have to put people first and you have to listen to people. You have to understand their experiences and, and, and everyone, right? My parents talked to everyone. There was no such thing as you, you know, only talk to some people and not others. And it shaped my experiences, including a policing. I'll give you a really prime example. My father, and I think it was 1963, although it could have been 64, um, but in Syracuse, and this was a summer that was roiled by riots, right? By black folks uprising because of police violence, because of abuse, because of all those things that we're still seeing activism around today. My father went to the police commissioner and he said to the police commissioner, because the, 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 the uprisings were roiling across the country all through the summer. And he said, don't go into the black neighborhoods. And the police commissioner thought he was nuts. And he was a civil rights leader. So the police commissioner took him seriously. My father was also very persuasive. <laughs> and he convinced the police, it helps. He convinced the police commissioner not to send police officers into black neighborhoods. Guess which city did not have a riot that summer? Syracuse. 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 Now think about that lesson. We assume policing keeps us safe, and it does. There's an appropriate role for policing for the appropriate functions of policing. This is not an anti-policing position. It's what's the role. But a containment control, see people as the enemy and the problem, is what creates the problem, right? So what, we, what he did is change the orientation and said, don't see Black people as a problem and go in preemptively to, to, to control black people, recognize that that's not your job <laughs> and that there's right. a different way and that there's a different way of looking at, at black community and of being in relationship with black community. And he, the point was he had the conversation, right? He didn't refuse to talk to police, but he was engaging police in what is the job? What's your role? What do, what do you need to hear from us about what we know about our own communities? How do you need to see and understand our wisdom around what creates violence and what prevents violence? And so for me, so much of what we have to do after George Floyd's killing, after Eric Garner's killing, after having to say, I can't breathe, and, and the, the metaphor of having someone's knee on our necks as a community, that is a model of policing that does not create safety, that only escalates violence as well as division. And so what we have to go back to is the fundamentals of what is the job of a police officer? What are the priorities of policing? What do we need police officers to do? 
because certainly it's going after illegal guns that are coming into our community. Certainly it's responding to violent incidents that are occurring, but it's certainly not being a mental health professional. That's not the role or the job. It's certainly not deciding someone is a problem because they're poor and policing them because of poverty. It's certainly not those things. And so reshaping the priorities of policing, do it, doing it by engaging with the public, giving the public a voice in what those priorities are, and then right-sizing it, which we talked about earlier, recognizing that we have to make sure we're freeing up resources for the investments that do keep us safe and that keep police officers safe too, because it is not helpful to a police officer to be put in a dangerous situation that requires a mental health professional because that's what creates the problem in the first place. And we can solve that. And I, and it's what called me into the race because what we, we can't do is solve it with business as usual. We have to solve it with change making. Yeah, I mean, and there's, there's so much wisdom in the idea of the solutions coming from the people who really deal with the problems. So this mayoral election will involve ranked choice voting for the first time, which you are an advocate for. How do you think this could um, change the results? Can you explain what ranked choice voting really is and why it could be a more accurate way of electing an official? Yes, I'd love to because I'm a big proponent because I believe in democracy. And fundamentally, ranked choice voting is a democratic reform, a pro-democracy reform, because what we're saying to people is, look, you're going to have a lot of choices in this race, but instead of just picking one, rank your choices. Who do you most want to see? Who's your first choice? And if you couldn't have your first choice for some reason, who would be your second choice? And on down the line, and in New York City, you will be able to rank up to five, a total of five people, first, second, third, fourth, fifth. All that means is if there is not a clear winner, in the first round of voting, right? When we go to the polls and when people vote, if there's not someone who has won 50 plus percent plus one votes, right? That's a winner. And then we're done. That's who wins the primary. If that, if, if we, no one gets 50 plus one, all that happens is the person with the least votes gets thrown out and it just gets retabulated. And the reason why that's a good thing is number one, it means that you don't have to come back to the vote polls a second time to say who your second choice was, <laughs> right? You, you, and that is important because for low-income people, for people who live paycheck to paycheck or not even or are struggling or who children to care for elderly, they don't come back to the polls the second time. And so we dilute our civic engagement, we dilute our, our political voice. And so often it's the most vulnerable whose voices are diluted in that. And that's not good for democracy. And it's also more efficient, right? We save a lot of money. So talk about the public coffers and the need to be more efficient. Why make, why pay for the millions of dollars for folks to come back a second time when you just have them rank them in the first instance? So all of that is just good for democracy. Uh, and fairly simple if we just understand it and do the public education, because that's all we're asking people to do. So no one knows what impact it has because it's up to the voters, right? It's really about, and the other thing I really love about it, it's really about going after every single vote, which is also good for democracy. Telling candidates, if you want to win, 
you don't just go to the voter rich districts because now you got ranked choice voting. You need to fight for to be number two or number three on someone's list that otherwise you wouldn't go and ask for their vote. And that's just also good for democracy, asking every last one of us running for public office to put our feet in everybody's streets and to try to fight for every vote. That's just good for folks. But that means we don't know because people will do different things, right? Um, people will make different calculus about what they do or how they do it. So candidates have a lot to say about what the outcome is. So I'm a candidate who believes in it because I believe in showing up in every community, no matter how many voters turn out and right, speaking to everyone. I'm very comfortable saying, vote for me. And if I'm not your first choice, make me your second choice. <laughs> like I want to earn, I want to earn your support. That, uh, that puts the power in the hands of candidates to try to direct, you know, what happens um, in the elections. But we don't know because at the end of the day, it's up to voters and it's up to candidates to fight for those votes. Right. Well, without without being, you know, a prognosticator myself, I definitely I can't see based on kind of like what I've heard about this race, I can't see a situation where like one person gets 50% plus one. So it does feel like it is going to be consequential. But I'm excited to take part in that election. And um, I, I think it's definitely a good change, in my opinion. We all dread the what should we have for dinner question. I mean, I know I do. I love a home-cooked meal, but I don't always have the time, energy, or groceries to make it happen. Being able to feast on a delicious meal without the long prep and cook times is what drew me to Home Chef over the other guys. Home Chef's meals are effortless, so I can spend less time trying to be Top Chef and more time watching it. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week and serves a variety of dietary needs, so you never have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. For a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and of course, free shipping on your first box. Just go to homechef.com slash fever dream. That's homechef.com slash fever dream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard that right. Homechef.com slash fever dream must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. When it comes to the plant-based eating debate, there's more to consider than just healthy or unhealthy. Of course, we want to eat things that make us feel good and generate energy to keep us going. But there's also a major environmental component that drives a lot of people to a plant-focused diet. But you don't have to give up some of your faves entirely. Impossible Foods makes meat from plants. They're solving the meat problem with more meat. By creating delicious meat from plants that's better for you and the planet, Impossible lets you enjoy some of your favorite meaty products with a plant-based twist. Ground beef, homestyle meatballs, sausage patties, all made from plants. And that's just a few of their delicious and versatile options. No more tension between craving meat but not wanting to eat so much of it or sacrificing your carnivorous faves for your health. Indulge in nutrient-packed, plant-based goodness and feel good doing it. Check out impossiblefoods.com to see how you can help solve the meat problem with more meat. That's I-M-P-O-S-S-I-B-L-E-F-O-O-D-S dot com. We're going to do our next segment. It's called The Four Questions. It's basically just a way for our audience to get to know some of the, on a more personal level, the media figures or politicians who, you know, they might not know that much about personally, but get to know your potential mayor. 
The first question is, what is your happiest memory? Oh, you know, I love this question. Um, one, because it, well, it reminds me that I have a lot of them. And that's a, not a small thing when you've had a lot of trauma in your life, which I have also had. Um, but one of my, one of them that comes to mind often is a day that my brother and I, we were little kids, probably seven and eight. And it was a summer day and the Goodyear blimp. I don't know. (laughs) When we were little, it was a big deal when you'd see the Goodyear blimp. It might not be as exciting anymore, but it was always amazing to see the Goodyear blimp and and a big deal to sight it. And my father had a little sports car. And we loved the back seats because they were little teeny seats and they were perfect size for us. And he would put the top down and we were driving. I forgot where we were going, but he said, the Goodyear blimp. And we were like, the Goodyear blimp. And he said, let's follow it. And it we spent, it was the most fun. I can't even explain to you how much fun it was just on this adventure, driving around the city, following you know, following this blimp and the excitement as little kids of like, you know, telling dad, no, 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 go right, go right. It's going right. And it was just joyous. And it was like, it was play, even though you were in a car, it was like, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. (laughs) It was maybe I was younger. it's It's an old movie. It's a Dick Van Dyke movie. I'm dating myself. But as a little kid, it was it was kind of like a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang moment with my dad just driving around the city, following this blimp on a summer afternoon that turned into a summer evening, just laughing and joyous. And that's all we were doing. And it was, it was magic. It was pure magic. That's really sweet. It, it really is very special when people pick a moment that is just so personal and it could seem unremarkable, but it really brings a lot of joy. And just hearing you describe it is, is really sweet. Yeah. And it's a reminder that it's, it's really people and the little thing really is. Yeah. Okay. So our second question, not so much about the little things, but it is still hypothetical. If you could go on a vacation with any two people in the world, who would they be and where would you go? Dead or alive. So I have to say, I would really want to go with James Baldwin and Beyonce. That's fun. Exactly. Right. Because I'm like, first of all, James Baldwin, who was one of my favorite writers, and and of course, as a, as a, as a racial justice advocate, also, you know, an incredible pillar historically, and in terms of the chronicling he did of the movement, and very activist and just and an amazing writer and all of that. And a true intellectual, but also a really interesting New Yorker. And Beyonce, because, hey, Beyonce. And I really want to be in a conversation with James Baldwin and Beyonce together. (laughs) Yeah. Where would you go? I would go to St. Lucia. Oh, nice. Because I love St. Lucia. (laughs) Okay. I mean, that sounds like lovely. It's beautiful. It is. The people are lovely. It is warm and sunny and has beaches, which I love. And so I could just imagine hanging out with folk, with Beyonce and with, you know, James Baldwin, having a fascinating conversation and a lot of fun at the same time. I'm picturing you on the beach, three chairs lined up. Yeah. You're in the with middle. With some music playing, yeah. you know, probably. Beyonce music. Beyonce, yeah. we're getting up and dance and doing a little, you know, and you could make me look yeah. bad, but that's okay. <laughs> you, you have your own set of skills, <laughs> which, which actually brings us perfectly to our third question. What is something 
that you are terrible at and cannot be trusted with at all. And I promise not to hold this over you if you are the mayor. You do not want me fixing any plumbing anytime soon. That is not a civil, that is not your going to be your job. So that works. It's yeah. not, and it, but it's just like, if you, like, I, I, I mean, when our drains flap, like even just the little, like, you know, plunger that you do in the, yeah. like, you don't want, I literally like put a hole in a pipe and made a simple <sighs> problem, like astronomically worse. And I've just learned, I call up the plumber and say, I just need you to come. Well, you have a good excuse not to try to fix anything. <laughs> It's a really, I can fix some things. Just don't ask me to fix plumbing. I'm not proud. I can't fix it. I can't unstop the drain. Don't even ask me. That's a, I mean, it's good that you, you took a different career path then. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> okay. And for our last question, this is a big one. If you had the power to just sort of magically make any problem go away, to fix anything in this world, what would it be? I've got to say hunger. I got to say hunger. It's an important one. It's just so directly fundamental to humanity, to dignity. It's inexcusable. It's actually solvable <laughs> if we yeah. have the will, um, but it's unconscionable. And I would solve hunger. I think that's a good answer. That is definitely, definitely necessary. Well, thank you, Maya. I am so thrilled to have had you, but this has been such an amazing conversation. I have loved learning about your platform. I really hope the audience enjoys it and learns more about you and what you could potentially bring to New York City. And thank you so much. This has been a really amazing conversation. Well, Sammy, thank you so much for having me. It was a complete joy for me, a complete refreshing conversation. I so love the mix of questions. And I would ask for anyone who wants more information about the campaign, including being able to sign up for our People's Assemblies, where we actually ask folks to participate in problem solving. Sign up at mayawileyformayor.com. I think you guys can find that one. <laughs> And then you can participate in our mask competition and vote for which mask you think for the campaign we should use. And can they donate? And they can absolutely donate and we would greatly appreciate it. Can they volunteer? They can absolutely volunteer. We have phone banking. We have text banking. Uh, we're actually starting our petitioning process. So we're looking for volunteers for petitioning and even for helping us manage things like our people's assemblies or doing research. There is no shortage of work. And this is a people-powered campaign. And there's nothing better than getting to work with people. That's awesome. You guys know where to find her, mayawileyformayor.com. Thank you for listening to today's Afternoon Tea. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can help us grow by heading over to the feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe, or follow if you're listening on Spotify. Until next Friday, I'm Sammy Sage, and this has been your political therapy session. Afternoon Tea is brought to you by The Betches Sup. Our producers are Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales, Stacey Wong, and Nicole Pellegrino. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Our editor is Stacey Wong. Be sure to follow Morning Announcements on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you never miss a morning news update. Betches.